0: What's up, everybody? Michael Johnson here with the Business Choreography Podcast. I'm excited you joined me today because we have a really cool guest. His name is David Wagstaff, and I'm so excited for you to meet him and glean all of his incredible knowledge. David is grateful to have the privilege to co-lead a global diverse community of 100,000 entrepreneurs. He is a mentor and business coach to hundreds of business owners and entrepreneurs. He's a lifetime entrepreneur from selling lemonade on the street corner to funding and selling multiple businesses. And he's also received awards for as the top 10 in leadership by Global $1 billion Consulting Company. And he is here with us today, going to share some incredible knowledge and some incredible expertise and insight. Let's cue the intro. remember your choreography matters welcome to the business choreography podcast david welcome to the show thank you so much for joining us today thank
1: you michael it's great to be here with you today
0: absolutely so excited to share your journey, share your story, tell everybody about how you got here, tell them what they're, what you're up to. So first, we're going to start with your backstory. It's never a straight line journey when you're an entrepreneur and uh, and that's crazy. So we're going to go back to the beginning. I want to start with your story. You've told me some of it and it's it's great. And I want to make sure we share that with everybody.
1: Uh, thanks. I appreciate it. So like many entrepreneurs, I started early. I started selling lemonade. True story. I actually was one of those kids doing it and I sold buckets of lemonade Whereas other kids sold cups of lemonade. It wasn't because I was the best entrepreneur at seven years old. I didn't even know what the term meant, but it was because I had the good fortune of being on a really, really busy street corner. So a couple of entrepreneurial lessons there. One is location matters. And a lot of times it's luck. I didn't choose the location. My parents did. And not because they wanted me to sell lots of lemonade, but it's because it's where they chose to live. So that's the beginning story of it is really, you know, you you try something as a kid, you have some success on it that builds your confidence and you're like, wow, this is actually kind of cool. I like this. And so then, you know, went on, I don't know how long, I'll probably just cover that for right now, unless you want me to go further (laughs) in the story. You keep going. Wind me up and I'll go for a while.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. I mean, what a cool beginning and a cool start. I feel like a lot of us as entrepreneurs can really relate to that and and know that that's the case. You said something that's really important, and I want to dig into it before we get too far down the line of the story. You said location matters in today's marketplace and in today's uh, arena of business. Being online is sort of a prerequisite these days to having a business. You got to be online. You got to have a presence. But it's now refined itself to being even more particular about location. Tell us how location is different now at the internet age compared to being on the right place in the right corner.
1: So, Michael, I love the question because today it is online, right? So when I started my first business, it was management consulting. And so I didn't really need a physical location. You know, I used a home location. So the online location is making sure things look professional, making sure you have a professional brand. I built and sold a management consulting company that I operated from my house, which you couldn't have done 30 or 40 years ago. But because the brand was professional, that's your location today. So when people go to your website, it has to look great or at least professional at a minimum. That business, I think we updated the website three or four times in five or six years. But at the same time, each time we're building credibility with our customers and customers by trust. So part of the location today is how you build authority, how you build trust. So that's kind of the replacement to a physical brick and mortar, even though this is actual brick. <laughs> and I know the sun's coming in here bright today behind me, so it looks kind of washed out, but it's a real wall.
0: Yeah. I was wondering that it's, it's great looking actually the the light is perfect because it points right at you. (laughs) The designers are all thinking that's great. It's, it's epic. (laughs) Um, I love that. Tell us a little bit more about uh, that journey of, of having and creating a a management consulting company and then going all the way through the process of selling it. I mean, that's, that's a, a huge phase from creating it to, giving it up and selling it to, you know, something that you, that was your baby, essentially.
1: Yeah. So if we look at the journey of the first management consulting company I set up, so the first thing is I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I already talked about the really, really early days of Lemonade stands, Lots of other kid-based businesses that were selling things like trading cards and all of that. So I knew I had this passion, but when I went on to get my MBA, finance accounting, new venture creation, I knew that entrepreneurship was in the future, so worked for the big companies. It all ties into how I started this first business, all part of that journey, and I worked for big consulting firms like Pricewaterhouse and KPMG, and I loved working for them. I thought they were great firms. I loved the people I worked with, worked with an amazing group of folks, and I learned lots of good skills and also things to stay away from, either from a management perspective or from our client's perspective. And so learning all those skills, now it was time to kind of put it in place. So I ended up deciding I wanted to start a management consulting company. And so since I had worked for the really large companies uh, for much of my background, I had to figure out who was my ideal customer persona. I didn't think Bank of America or Wells Fargo was going to hire from basically a single shingle consulting firm. So the first step was figuring out who were those companies were most likely to buy from a small firm. And then what was the value proposition that they would buy? So I ended up choosing community banks because there were lots of them and I thought they might be willing to buy. And then because I lacked sales skills or comfort or confidence in my sales skill, I should say, even though I sold lemonade, uh, uh, I built an offer that I felt was an irresistible offer. So, I said, you don't have to pay me anything unless I produce value. And then you'll pay me a percentage of the value produced contingent, fee consultant. So, that was really kind of the early days figuring out who was the ideal target audience. I could go a little further there because it might be relevant for your audience. And then figuring out how do we reach them and what's the approach. So, if you want me to go a little further on those, yes,
0: can- definitely.
1: Okay, so I started off with, I didn't want to fly across country. I'd been doing that for years as a management consultant, and that was one reason I wanted to have my own. So I first went to a physical map like they used to have, and I did what was about a five or six hour radius, because I figured if it was five or six hours drive away, I could go out and back in one day. And so that made sense. I think I ended up with 650 banks that were in my geography within the five hour radius. Wow. So I did a big market. So that was too big though, because you can't reach out to all 650 in an easy way and reach the right decision makers. And I knew my target audience within the bank was likely CFOs, COOs, maybe the CEO, and some other senior folks. So after choosing the geography and choosing the market, then I did market research, and then I started thinking about well, what size in there are the best size. So the. $100 million bank may sound pretty big, but it really isn't very big. That's a tiny bank. Right. So when you get into a billion-dollar bank, you end up having 100, 200 employees typically. And that's big enough where I figured they could afford the rates that I wanted to be able to charge. Right. And so you start looking at what's the size fit, what's the pricing, who's likely to buy. These are some good questions to ask if you're going into you know, consulting or if you're going to any business looking at, What's the right size, what's the demographics for the things that you're selling? And then from the 650, I thought, well, again, that's too many, and so I broke that down into those that were the right size and had other characteristics that were favorable. I didn't really wanna go six hours you know, every day, and so I went more local, and I ended up breaking that down into 45. The 45 were my eight priorities. From the 45, I broke that down into three more groups, one, two, and three or my A, B, and C within that. Those top 15, I ended up meeting with all of those over the next few years, and three of those became significant clients, kind of quarter million dollar clients. So breaking it down, having an achievable goal. Now, I reached out to all the others in some way as well, but I'll probably take a break there. There's another spot where I could look at, well, how do you actually reach the target audience? And that's the next thing I looked at.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to cover that before we go on. I, I want to just cut back a little bit, but I don't want to lose the train of thought because I definitely want to talk about how to how you figured out how to get into those uh, to those decision makers. Because that right there, I know as I've talked to a lot of business owners, is a seemingly insurmountable goal, especially when they're just starting out and they know they have something to offer, but getting to the decision maker is challenging. So we're going to come back to that. But before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about your, your knowledge from having worked with the big firms. You mentioned earlier things to stay away from. Can you give us just sort of a quick overview on some of the things that you learned? Like, hey, these are some things that I definitely need to stay away from.
1: Uh, so a couple of things. One is analysis paralysis. So lots of the big companies will study and study and study something for years, and they'll never actually move forward. So that's one common thing that happens. The other thing that happens really at almost all size businesses is you make a decision as a management team or as a manager, and then you don't really look back at those decisions often. So three or five years, there may be a lot of other things that have changed in the systems and processes, but you don't go back to say, does that one still make sense? So I worked with clients that were doing things that nobody was using. You know, it was just that, Hey, we've always done it this way. We have this time card system. And so we collect time cards from the sales staff. Well, they were no longer using it because everything else was automated and whatnot. So that kind of thing happens. So sometimes you have to look at One other, one other piece of advice is always look for the magnitude of the opportunity. So you need to begin to prioritize what are those things that are likely to be you know, million dollar opportunities if you're working for a larger company or, you know, 100,000, maybe for a smaller company and look at what are those things that you can impact. So you need to begin to prioritize those opportunities. I'll wow. give you one more example. Sorry, on the look back. So I also worked for a nonprofit after I built some consulting companies and had a chance to sell them. I look for what is it that I'd like to do? And I decided I wanted to get back in the community. So I worked for a nonprofit. One of those look back things was there's workers' comp insurance. And so when I started prioritizing the opportunities, workers' comp insurance was not one or two on the expenses, but it was in about the top 15 expenses. It was a couple hundred thousand dollar a year expense for this organization. So I started looking at that. I'm like, well, I wonder what's the source of this? What causes the rate? And so I talked to the insurance agent. They're like, no, 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 it's state regulated. Nothing you can do about it. Love hearing things like that because that always makes me feel like there's something to do something about this. We ended up getting over a $200,000 rebate check for that nonprofit, which was significant, about 20% of their operating budget. Wow. So So it was really, really significant. And uh, that was just. By looking back and saying what are the big expenses and mm-hmm. the point on the workers comp is it had been set in 1985 when they started they were weighted but you know 20 years later nobody had looked to say is that rating still relevant for this organization and the services that they're, they're offering and i wow. misstated 80 percent was wrong because they were actually about a five million dollar budget too.
0: wow wow no i mean that's incredible and and it, it speaks volumes towards actually gaining the skill and having the experience having done it and then being able to take it and turn it into your own thing i think that's huge and i i feel like there's a lot of of entrepreneurs i hear about that are trying to shortcut that process they're trying to shortcut the process of gaining the skills and the experience and then they wonder why they're not making enough money or why they're not getting enough back in return it's because they haven't added the value and that i think perfectly demonstrates the experience that you had and then taking that and utilizing it to to create the next thing i love it i want to go back to talking about how you figured out how to get the to the decision makers before we move on to the the next phase
1: great so i will go there and i'm going to go back to what your your point was just a moment ago so one of the reasons why providing great value really makes a difference is when I looked back over a previous 10-year time period, where did most of my business came from? It was a repeat business or customers that referred me to someone else, or maybe the customer went to a new organization, and they're like, this is the first time we need to bring on board. So building the reputation for delivering great value becomes a huge source for future revenue if you do it correctly. So that's yeah. really, really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yep.
1: You know, your other question, though, is how do we get into the decision makers? How did how did I do that? So first, one of the things a book I recommend is talking to humans. This was before I had read the book, but I kind of picked up on some of the concept there. Talking to humans is what questions do you ask people when you go into business? You don't typically want to ask questions like, hey, I'm going to go into this business. What do you think? Do you like it or not? Because those people that are predisposed to give you positive answers will say, Oh, it's wonderful, go jump off the cliff. You know, whatever you're planning on doing, they'll just give you positive answers because they're super supportive. And then there's other people in your life that are the naysayers. They'll always say, It'll never work. Neither of those answers are useful to you when you're setting up a business. So, what you have to know is to ask questions of people like, where would you go to buy this service? So that's the kind of question I asked a friend of mine. I knew one person in community banking and you know, they were 12 hours away from me, but I called them, they were a CFO. And I said, you know, if I were looking to hang out with people like you or meet people like you, where would I go? And he said, oh, well, we go to the bank conferences. And I'm like, oh, is it a national thing? He's like, no, 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 every state has bank conferences. So I ended up signing up for the local bank associations And I went to their meetings and the first time I went, it was like I had my list of, you know, the 15 and the 45 and I knew who they were. It was amazing. I was able to sit down and sit right next to the CFO of one of my top really 15 prospects and have dinner with them because I was looking at name badges. I'm like, oh, there he is. You know, I know here's another woman that I wanted to meet. And so you can start to interact with people on a face-to-face basis because I knew where they were hanging out.
0: Right. Wow. I mean, and, and. I love the simplicity of it because I, I think that oftentimes gets overlooked. I, I don't know what it is about entrepreneurs, but we tend to uh, we tend to do things the hard way. <laughs> but I, but it's straightforward. Figure out where people would go to meet or to uh, get in touch with those people that you're looking for, and then go there. Imagine that
1: exactly. And then taking just one year further, once I learned where they hung out, then I figured the way to build credibility was to speak. And so I built proposals, did proposals, and was able to speak the next year at the conference. And then every year after that, I was able to speak at the bank conferences. So that really provided a lot of new sources of clients.
0: That's great. I love it. Okay, so let's move past. You you sold your management company. And... Now on to other bigger and greater things. Why in the world did you sell? And what was it that got you into the next thing?
1: So a few things along the way there. So first I decided, as I mentioned, the nonprofit earlier. So when I sold that business, I looked at living a regret-free life. And I still believe in trying to live a regret-free life. And one of my regrets was I hadn't done something like Peace Corps. So people that I knew and respected had really given back right out of college. And I thought, that's so cool. I'm sorry I didn't do that, that's a regret. So how do you rectify the the regret? Well, you know what, you go about doing it mid-career. So mid-career, I decided I was going to take a step back from my business that I had built. And and I thought that their hours at the nonprofit were only 35 hours a week. To me, that felt like part-time. And so I'm like, you know what, I can actually continue to manage my business some because I had a couple of senior level employees. And I can do this nonprofit at the same time. So I ended up doing both for about a year. And after the year, I decided that it made sense to go to work for an international consulting company and help them build a consulting practice. And at the same time, my senior employees were interested in buying the business. So those things, the confluence of events decided to exit the nonprofit, which I hadn't planned to be at forever, but I'd had my experience of making a difference for a year. And it was a great year, really, really challenging, but also really, really good in many ways as well. So then I went to work for the international consulting company and I sold my business to my senior level employees. So that's how I sold my first business. Wow.
0: All right. So then is the work that you started to build after towards ePrens or is it is it is there still a phase before that?
1: There's quite a few other phases before. In some ways, without getting into all the details, so went to work for the international consulting company. I was able to sell them an intellectual property from what I had built in my own business. So nice. when I did the business sale, I sold IP to them. I sold some of the business aspects to the the people who are running it now. And then after a period of time, I decided to start another consulting company. And uh, it was fun working for the international company again. Lots of positives there. But ultimately, I kind of missed being my own boss and doing my own thing. Right. And so I ended up building another management consulting company. And this time, one difference was I started with the end in mind. So I knew that developing an exit strategy should be done, they say, the day before you start the business. And so right away, I actually started thinking about what was the potential exit if I built this business. And I decided my ideal exit was to a mid mid-size CPA firm. And sure enough about five years later after i built the business i sold it to a mid-sized cpa firm. and so that was another step in the business in my business it. i love it and then That's i started it. another company that was like airbnb for the garden so <laughs> the one thing i had missed in these other businesses is a truly scalable startup that has an almost ability to run and grow and so came up with the idea of doing something like airbnb but for the garden And it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of successes. We reached like over 14,000 people while we were running the platform. We had tremendous growth every year early on. We had lots of people, including private equity funds, showing up at meetings uh, before we even really had anything in place other than concept. So that was really, really, really a fun run. But ultimately, that business was not viable. So that is a business failure that I had from the perspective (laughs) of needing a successful, positive exit. Built it, had huge clients, including you know, the employees at Campbell Soup and uh, large hospital chain. And then I decided that uh, I was looking for what was next. I felt too early to retire. And so now we're bringing it into ePrends. And so as I started looking at what was next, I felt like maybe giving back to entrepreneurs and maybe being a mentor and maybe hooking up with a university and just being a volunteer mentor of some variety. But much like the busy street corner when I was selling lemonade, I was lucky to be early days of LinkedIn. And so I had built a LinkedIn group that grew to 10 members, 100 members, 1,000 members, and then 10,000 members using some strategies to grow it, including reaching out to mid-level influencers. And so when I looked around for what's next, I'm like, you know, I already have this group of 50,000 entrepreneurs that I'm working with. I wonder why they're joining this group. So why don't I survey them and see what they're doing? And so I surveyed them and many people said they wanted to provide content, basically market their own service through content. Other people wanted to read content. I thought that's a great match. Right now we have those that want to read and those that want to provide. So I don't have to do it. All I have to do is match them. That's good. And then interestingly, aspiring entrepreneurs wanted mentorship. Maybe that isn't that unique or surprising. But what was surprising is accomplished entrepreneurs overwhelmingly wanted to give back and they wanted to share the skills they had if they had grown a five million dollar business and now they were 30 years in they were ready to show other people how to do what they had done they weren't ready to quit yet and that was the experience i had i felt like i wasn't ready to quit yet i still love business and i wanted to give back my skills to others and so i resonated with that and i thought that's a great matching too. you have those who want mentorship and those that need it and so if we can match the two then we've actually provided a service to everybody
0: wow consummate entrepreneur in in all phases of the game and and I love it because you constantly did something about it and I think that's uh that's admirable because so many have the vision and so many don't actually put it into play uh tell me a little bit more of what eprinz is now and and what it's developed to maybe where you guys are headed and and what the what the goal is for it
1: sure so once made the decision to move it forward i started working with a a young man in south india who had just graduated from college and he was one of those people looking for mentorship so it was like a perfect fit i decided i wanted to do mentorship he walks along and his background profile i'll remember which i thought was amazing is he said every expert was once a beginner and that's a helen hayes quote and it was a perfect quote for someone coming out of college, right? You know, they're not an expert yet. They recognize where they are in the world, but they know that they'll get there if they keep practicing. Right? So he and I built a really nice friendship. We were both generous with one another. I offered him a good hourly rate. He ended up charging me like a tenth of an hour, even when he had put a couple hours into something. I'd be like, well, Sam, why did you do that? And he's like, I was learning the rest of the time. I couldn't charge you for that. And so we <laughs> built a trusted relationship. So, that's an important thing when you look for a co founder, someone you can trust and rely on, someone you enjoy working with. And Sam exhibited all of those and he was super smart. On a test of 230,000 people, he scored in the top 230 or something like that. So, a really, really great person I look for as a co founder, someone I wanna work with, and someone I can trust. And so, pretty soon, I asked him if he wanted to be part of the founding team of this business. And he said, yes. And so at that point, we started to set up a business. We had some other data points that led us to believe this was potentially viable and, uh, you know, had some market demand in in there. And so we went live uh, in May, uh, five, four years ago, and we added on 125 people the first month and every month thereafter we were growing at that rate. And so we eventually added on some staff. And COVID was an accelerator for us where we started growing by 3,000 members a month. Wow. And we added on a team of people to help onboard people to get that personalized customer experience. And our mission from the start was making a meaningful difference for 100,000 entrepreneur, <laughs> entrepreneurs, regardless of their differences all over the world. So we set that mission, we kept that mission to this day with we, with the exception of we added two new words last October, which is we made it more focused on social impact entrepreneurs. So we want to make a meaningful difference for 100,000 social impact entrepreneurs all over the world, regardless of their differences. We believe if we can succeed in that mission, we can actually change what it means to be human. We can make a difference in You put a drop in the ocean of what it means to be human, I really should say. We're not going to completely transform it. But because those entrepreneurs are making a difference for other people in the space of equality, spaces of uh, sustainability or climate and other issues that matter to the world. So that's what we're doing today. And then the way we're doing it is through uh, providing uh, a platform for coaches to succeed in, in working with them, coaches and consultants. So we are supporting coaches and consultants working with social impact entrepreneurs. We're supporting them through coaching, we're supporting them through providing systems platform, and other things, tools that they need to succeed.
0: Wow. Wow, what a great mission and, and, and fun to hear about how you grew it, you know, not, not all at once, but all the experiences along the way to help kind of culminate and and put it into something that really sounds like you love it and i can hear your energy about it and i can hear your excitement about it and to hit that goal is going to be great fun uh how cool is that i i want to know a little bit more because there's i'm sure that there are some listeners out there that are thinking to themselves gosh you know uh, i want to know more about how he's doing that and about what I can do to participate. I believe in that goal. I believe in that concept. So talk to us a little bit more about if somebody's hearing you right now and they're thinking, yeah, I want to get in. What is what's it look like? What is, what happens?
1: Okay. So first there's a couple of types of individuals that would be great for this social impact entrepreneurs, people that want to make a difference in the world. So if you're someone out there today and you're, either already going and you know building a solar company or building regenerative technology or doing something for equality, whether that be gender equality, maybe you're a coach that works just with women because you believe in gender equality, or maybe you're someone that uh, believes in economic equality and you're working with people in a part of town that may not have economic uh, access to resources. So we work with folks like that on helping them to succeed. So that's our end, you know, group that we're really working with. But along the way, we're working with coaches, and we because we believe we need thirty-six hundred coaches on our platform within about the next two years to serve our goal of reaching the hundred thousand entrepreneurs. We have team leaders effectively. We call them, uh, you know, coaching partners or coaching leaders. The coaching leaders each will have 60 coaches on their team. And then the 60 coaches in turn coach 30 uh, end entrepreneurs. That ends up being 108,000 entrepreneurs. So that's how we get to our goal of 108,000. We have 108,000 in our LinkedIn group. But in order to make a true meaningful difference, we know that it really takes one-on-one uh, care and understanding the business, understanding the challenges, the things that they're facing. And one thing I'd like to clarify is a lot of times when people hear social impact entrepreneurs, they think, yeah, but I don't really want to volunteer social impact entrepreneurs are not volunteers. They're people who are making a living. It could be a hundred million dollar business. that's doing regenerative technology and utility or something like that. So there's no vow of poverty in this. And a matter of fact, we actually think the vow of poverty would defeat the purpose of making a meaningful difference because what we want, attract the best minds out there. And the best minds deserve to be well compensated while they're making a difference in the world. That's our goal. So we are a public benefit corporation or a B Corp for short, making a difference in the world and also achieving financial goals. So that's that's what we hope to do for our coaches or that's what we're doing for the coaches and the entrepreneurs as well.
0: Wow, very cool. Well, I'm sure, that there are some people that want to connect and find out more. What are some of the ways that they can get to you and and connect to what you're doing?
1: Uh, so thanks for that. I'm pretty accessible. LinkedIn is the primary way to reach me. Uh, I find that I get way, way, way too many emails, maybe five or six hundred a day, and I go through most of them in 15 minutes at the end of the day. So I can't really respond to most of those. But on LinkedIn, I typically do look at my messages and uh, and get through those and respond in some form. So it's, uh, I think it's just dwagstaff at, uh, I would have to look it up actually. The uh, LinkedIn, we can make sure we get it to you. But if Absolutely. you look up David Wagstaff on LinkedIn, you'll see that I show up.
0: Uh, Very so, easy.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Awesome. And uh, I believe they for can go time. to eprins.com, yeah, right?
1: Yeah, I should mention the website too, ePriends.com. You can connect with us and learn more about that. Thanks for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I'm uh, glad to be able to share it. Glad to be able to direct people uh, your way. Guys, go reach out and go check out what ePrends is all about. This is some cool stuff. And you know from listening to this interview that David has this stuff together, man, what a, what a cool journey. What a cool path. Do you have any parting words for us? Uh, you know, for all the entrepreneurs on their journey, all of them trying to figure out their way in the, in the world.
1: So let's see. So first, I mean, have fun doing it. Enjoy the ride. You know, it's really, it is a journey. You only have one go, at least I believe that at life. And so, you know, make sure that you're enjoying what you're doing every day. And, uh, I think that's really the main advice is enjoy what you're doing. If you have passion for it, if you're really committed to it, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to solve problems. That's part of the fun of entrepreneurship. And it may take a little while, but, you know, stick with it and keep going.
0: I love it. David, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. And all of you guys listening, don't forget, keep choreographing your business over and over again. You got to keep working on it. We'll see you guys next time on the next episode of Business Choreography. Take care. Thanks, Mike.
1: Thanks for joining us today.
0: Want more business choreography?
1: Check out our website at bizchoreo.com to find out more.
0: And find out how the choreography for your marketing operations and sales can raise your revenue and create more impact. Remember,
1: every business needs choreography.